You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and there is no Jim this week. He and I were supposed to co-present at the FIDO Alliance Authenticate 2021 conference this week in Seattle. Unfortunately, he was unable to make the trip due to a last-minute illness. So, I am flying solo this week, and I had several conversations with fellow identity professionals around a number of topics. This is the third of five conversations from Authenticate 2021. I spoke with Bob Lord, the former chief security officer for the Democratic National Committee, about how he sees the role of identity as part of an InfoSec strategy. Thanks in advance for listening, and here is that conversation. So I'm here with Bob Lord, former chief security officer at the Democratic National Committee, uh, part of the Authenticate 2021 conference. Welcome, Bob. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time out for us. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited actually to have a conversation about a bunch of things. So I will try to be respectful of my my fanboyism <laughs> as well as my uh, as your time. So, um, you know, we have a tradition on the show that whenever someone joins us for the first time that we like to kind of understand their identity origin story. Um, whether it's identity or infosec, because I think there's obviously a lot of interplay between the two and identity, at least in my perspective, and maybe you, maybe you feel free to agree or disagree, is that identity is foundational to part of any information security strategy. So maybe you can kind of take us through uh, you know, your, your long and storied career yeah. and uh, we'll go through there. Yeah, it, it is a long, I don't know if it's storied, but it's definitely been a long career. Uh, you know, so I started off at a company called Anderson Consulting, uh, which is now Accenture, and uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna age myself a little bit here, but uh, I I was the guy who had the right the business justification to get Anderson Consulting on the internet uh, back in the day when you had to write a business justification to do something that crazy, um, and so you know I think identity kind of came along for the ride in ways that we didn't fully appreciate. Um, uh, you know, fast forward uh, a few years, I went to work for a company called Netscape, and you know, every time I ask the, an audience how many people have heard for it every year, the number goes down. <laughs> Once again, dating myself. Um, so I did a few things there. One is what we now would call information security. We didn't really have a name for it back then. Um, it was just you know the security security guy, security team, whatever. Uh, and then uh, switched over to uh, product de- development, and so. Uh, we were selling uh, PKI systems to large corporations and banks and the federal government. And so, you know, issuing smart cards to do uh, SSL logins and SMIME and, and all that good stuff. And so there, there I think, was the first taste of, of really being rigorous about, uh, about identity and access management. Um, and that same group was also responsible for shipping the directory server, the LDAP server. So those two products, that certificate system and the directory server went hand in hand. And so I think I got a good taste for some of the problems that uh, engineering teams uh, were trying to deploy stuff that they would run into, you know, the, the practical realities of onboarding, offboarding, and uh, identity management. So, it, it, yeah, it would, I think I learned pretty early on this is, this is, this is rough work. Yeah, it, it, it certainly uh, sometimes is a thankless job. I think that, you know, from, from my background, just for your, for your perspective, is, is coming from the IAM operations side of things. So, you know, back in the day, not far, maybe as far back as the day, sorry, uh, <laughs> no Lotus Notes accounts, stores. mainframe accounts, yeah. you know, building those out and getting onto RACF and those sorts of things. So, um, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly interesting. You know, I want to touch back on the comment that you made about writing the justification for the internet and the access to it. 
this you know, this is probably blowing the minds of some people out there who... <laughs> there was a time before the internet. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for me, the time before internet would have been things like bulletin board services. So, you know, I remember very clearly sitting in, you know, what would have been essentially my father's office, which is just a room off the garage, um, you know, sitting at an IBM PC Junior and a 1200-baud modem and getting into services like Prodigy and America right. Online and CompuServe. Remember eWorld? Apple eWorld? Apple eWorld. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. This was back when the, you know, the online services charged by the hour. You got a certain number mm-hmm. of hours yeah. as part of kind of like the package, and it was it, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And this is where, um, you know, I'm going to call out my brother, Charles. <laughs> um, there was a game called Shadow of Yeservius. I think it was on America Online, mm-hmm. but it was an hourly service at that time still. So he played that game like nonstop, and we got like the hugest bill oh at the God. time. I you know, like, oh my gosh, you are dead. <laughs> uh, and that's how far back we go. And and it's interesting that you know from the justification that process that you had to go through to get internet access yeah. into your organization, you know it's. Were there people that said no? Like, no, we don't need that? Like, what was the, the catch there? Well, I think people didn't fully understand it. And, and so, I, just to be clear, so I worked in an R&D group. And so this group hired a bunch of PhDs to work on things like uh, seat inventory management for airlines. How do you make sure you have the most, uh, the, the best algorithm for putting the butts in the seats at the right price, that sort of thing? Uh, and so... I think, you know, part of what I wanted to do is get connected to the internet for all sorts of reasons because, you know, when I'd go to conferences, everyone would talk about, you know, all of these different services that are available. This is pre-web, but just the ability to be able to log into other systems, download code, uh, you know, and and part of my justification, which was kind of, I think, the thing that sold people was just, you know, we'd have to download versions of uh, X11, and so... Uh, we would send away for mag tapes. And when the researchers needed a new version for whatever reason, because they were doing different kinds of modeling and graphics, we'd have to send, literally send away. We'd send in a check in the mail, and then, they, <laughs> and then a few weeks later, some mag tapes would show up. And, and part of my justification was, this is ridiculous. We can just pull it down anytime we want. And that was the thing that sold it. So all of the other collaboration, those goals of researchers working together more closely, that wasn't quite compelling enough, but you know, just getting X11 done downloaded whenever we wanted it. That's, for whatever reason, the thing that people zeroed in on. That was the so trigger. So go figure. You find, you find the hot button, and it's like, all right, this, how, how do we Whatever works. This? Right. Um, so you've been linked up with a, a several different organizations, Twitter, Yahoo, AOL, Netscape, the Democratic National um, uh, Committee. Um, are there differences in the way that you've seen the approach to managing identity uh, you know, for, for each of those types of organizations? Because they're, you know, some are e-com, some are social yeah. media, obviously, you know, from the, the political side of things as well. Um, are they basically the same, or are there divergences for different areas? Yeah, so I guess, you know, going back to days of selling smart cards, so I think, you know, th- those, were, those were days in which we were working with organizations to really mature their internal systems. And I think, as, as we now know, the uh, fact that there's still uh, you know, identity podcasts, like this is still a hard thing. Um, and so there we were selling products. And then moving over to companies like Twitter, there's obviously a separation between the internal organization that is trying to 
onboard and offboard and manage employees and staff and contractors and vendors versus managing identity for the end users. And so, you know, for example, one of the things that people will probably have seen but may not have understood is in some sites you log in for the first time when you're creating the account, it'll ask you what you want your name to be, and then it'll ask you for a password. And if you pay attention, you'll notice that some places ask for a password twice, but some ask for just the password once. And, and in most cases, uh, it is the case that they had two passwords up there once, but there are teams called growth teams, and they're responsible for making sure that they get more subscribers and that they stay longer and that they continue to use the service more and more. And they take a look at the numbers and they try to figure out how do we shave just a little bit of friction off. And so they'll start cutting things that, of course, people in the security and identity space would say, like, no, you want them to type their password twice. You want them to confirm their email address because people, uh, they, they have typos everywhere. So you want to do all that up front, but the research will show that that degrades their ability to get onboarded and start to use the product effectively. And so you know, depending on where a company is in their maturity uh, curve, they'll either just ignore that and kick the can down the road and deal with account recovery at some future point, or they'll start to do something where they give you progressive nags to say, is this, is this really your email address? Wouldn't you like to verify it? Wouldn't you like to make sure this is your password? Whatever the, the, the rules are. But that's something where I think organizations that are publicly facing have to really struggle to balance the growth needs versus all of the needs of the security team. And remember, the growth team usually doesn't own account recovery. In some cases, they do, but not always, which means the incentives get misaligned. If the growth team does own things like account recovery and uh, you know, lost passwords, then they start to take things uh, with a, a more holistic approach. But some don't. So they just kick the can down the line, and another team has to pick up the pieces. I am all too familiar with that, of, of catching IAM operations problems after they've been thrown over the wall, <laughs> where you know there's been like, oh, this is a great idea. Marketing is going to put something out there, because it really is about the friction, right, for the user yeah. experience. How do you make it simple? Um, we've seen some, some um, you know, increases in the way that that becomes a little more user-friendly experience with things like progressive profiling. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's big in the marketing space as far as being able to over time, build this dossier, basically, of information yeah. right on the potential customer, et cetera, those sorts of things. But um, it's always nice when, you know, folks who are listening out there, if you are developing uh, IAM services, please don't forget about IAM ops <laughs> and the people who have to deal with all of the questions coming from the users, because no matter how easy you, you think you've made it, there will always be someone who will figure out some way to break that process and just cause heartache for everyone involved. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so you were most recently working with the Democratic National Committee. Um, what were some of the identity challenges that you were facing, you know, regularly? Um, I know you gave a talk uh, called A Call to Arms here at Authenticate, and I want to get to that in a little bit. But uh, And that, I know that touched on, on some of the items as well. But was there were there any common themes or things that were like, yeah, this is like something that we typically see at the DNC that maybe was different from, you know, other experiences that you've had in the in the infosec slash identity space. Yeah, I think there were, there were some things that were different uh, and a lot of things that were really the same, you know, just not, not so much from the identity standpoint, but a lot of what happens in organizations that have high turnover, especially ones that are very cyclical, like political organizations where they have a huge influx of people coming in to help support things like elections, um, they'll tend to accumulate technical debt in ways that are 
uh, more common in much larger organizations. And so high turnover can, uh, and reorgs, these are all things that generate technical debt. Even with a company that's relatively stable, if you have a reorg, I promise you somewhere along the line somebody is abandoning something that's working fine, but it no longer has a proper custodian who's, who's in charge of that. So a lot of what I had to do is go back and figure out what is all this stuff and what do we need. Um, and one of those things was we had lots of places where we had individual services that were not tied back to our single sign-on system. About half of them were probably not tied back in any way. And, and so we also had an internal uh, uh, directory system, so we had uh, an AD system for the Windows machines. And so there was really just this hodgepodge of identity and access management across the organization. And I'm going to say something that's going to freak out a bunch of people, but uh, one of the decisions we made, which was partly driven by cost and complexity, was we just got rid of all the Windows machines. And for all of, almost all of those people, we give them Chromebooks. And for a few who had specific technical requirements, and I mean technical requirements like Photoshop, um, you know, we gave them Macs. And so we really tried to reduce the attack surface in that regard, both in terms of simplifying the number of platforms that we supported, but also uh, deploying Chromebooks really changed the landscape. Like you, you people say, well, I, I can't run all my favorite software. And I say, yeah, but the bad guys can't either. And by the way, you can probably find a workaround and we can work with you. So we spent a lot of time doing what I call business process reengineering. It sounds, you know, companies do this at large companies, business process reengineering. I was doing it on a very small scale, but helping people rebuild their infrastructure so we could make sure that we had one identity system tied back to a single sign on provider, canceled contracts for companies that didn't offer single sign on integration, and then, uh, and then really just. Uh, made that part of the procurement process. So we, we got rid of all the, the dangling identity systems and then just made it part of the, the norm that you can't buy something new if, uh, if you're not tied back. One of the things that we found is that there is a thing called a single sign-on tax. And when you do security long enough, you start to become... Uh, uh, I don't know if it's you know, jaded around all of the, the fancy security tools that you use, and you realize identity and access management is really so such a big part of success, and we just don't talk about it enough. So that's why it's kind of nice to come to a conference where people already, you know, they understand that through, through whatever mechanism. So single sign-on tax is really hard for small organizations because many services charge more for single sign-on. So when you say, I want to tie this back to my Okta or Ping identity or Google or whatever, they charge you more. And sometimes it's 2x. It can be high as, as 10x or more. And it's not just that multiplier by seat, but like they have a minimum number of seats. And so it becomes cost prohibitive for small organizations. And if you're below the security poverty line and you're forced to really push to go buy more expensive products uh, where, the, the like I said, this, the price per seat can be 2x, 5x, 10x, you're just not going to win that battle. And so that's a, a force that keeps organizations that are below the security property line, it keeps pushing them down so they can't get their head above water. If you don't have control of who has access to what, there's almost no hope of you building a proper security program. And so I... I talk about that all the time because I don't think it's fully understood. Product people often feel, well, if people ask for it, uh, they're willing to pay for it. And I don't disagree in most cases, but I think things like good security 
are things that you should consider something closer to a, a basic feature or a human right uh, so that you are not talking about um, a model in which you're just trying to get every last penny out of it. And I've had many conversations with product managers and they'll say, oh, nobody's asking for this. You know, nobody's telling us this is a big problem. Right, because these people look at your website and they realize there's no way they can afford it. So they just go with the cheap version and you're never made aware that this is actually impacting their security. So that's something that I learned really firsthand uh, at, at the DNC. So there's a few different things I want to follow up on there. On I guess the first thing, let's let's go reverse order in my in my mind. In my mind, um, the the tax for single sign-on and really I think MFA is usually part of that as well. It's it's you know you get like maybe like oh we'll do SMS for free. Well of course you will because nobody want, nobody should be using it anymore. Right. It's still better than nothing, but right. it's really not the, the the preferred approach. But this idea of the security poverty line I find interesting because I do see a lot of organizations out there that are having to make do with what they can afford or yeah. what they've been approved by you know, management or the organization to kind of spend on it. And it becomes almost like this game of whack-a-mole where CISOs and CIOs are, they're given a limited budget, they have limited resources, what is the mole that's popping up that they need to whack that year, right? And maybe it's an audit finding because of you know, not knowing who has access to what, for example, or terminations not being done in a timely manner, right? Those are pretty common things that come up. Um, I guess what's the advice for is some for, for an organization that is below what we call that security poverty line? Um, what's your advice to to help those people get their head above it? Because there's only so much you know hand wringing you can go to the vendors and say, please sir, can I have some more? <laughs> you know, um, is there something that they can be doing within their own organization to say, look, I need more funding, and here's why. Yeah, so I, that's a, it's a great question. I don't know that I have the perfect answer for that. Uh, it's, it was something that I really struggled with. Um, I was able, you know, I had a receptive audience. Uh, the leadership of the DNC was willing to listen to logical arguments. And, uh, and then, well, the other thing I should mention is I also had to go off and do uh, fundraising also. So, uh, and, and that's fine. You know, I'm happy, to, if I need more money, I'm happy to go do the work to go get the more money, you know, to get, get additional uh, you know, go talk to the donors, whatever, whatever it took. So, um, but it's, it's a very hard problem. And I think, uh, if organizations are really interested in, in, uh, in, in getting above that line, at least with regard to identity, I, I think they just have to, to continue to push internally. I mean, I, I, but I do think you mentioned like going back to the vendors all the time. I do think that's part of the solution. I think being loud about this is part of, the long-term solution. That doesn't help you this quarter. That doesn't help you with the five different services that you know have too many uh, alumni who still have access to it. I, it doesn't help you there. But I think part of it is we need to speak with a louder voice. Um, there's a great website called SSO.tax, which documents this particular, um, this particular trend. And you know maybe people with enough voice, uh, big, big enough megaphones like you can uh, start talking about this more. Um, but I think we need to name and shame some of these vendors and just explain, in general, it's fine for you to charge where you're creating value. And this is an area where it's not appropriate. Nobody charges extra for TLS. Nobody charges extra for uh, you know, any number of other features uh, for performance or reliability and stability and not, not uh, losing your data all the time. Nobody charges extra for any of those. Those are just part of what it takes to build a service. All I'm asking for is for them to say, 
for identity and access management for single sign-on, and in particular for FIDO security keys, which is the subject of this conference, just treat those as the whatever your low level is. Um, and, and, and I think what you're going to find is a whole bunch more customers are going to come in at that level. You also talked about <clears throat> the, the migration from Windows devices to Chromebooks. That sounds fascinating to me because I think you're right in that I think a lot of people don't really realize how powerful SaaS solutions can be these days and that can they actually get their work done in a browser. I think most people can. I mean, I'll use myself as an example. People are shocked when they realize that I don't use Outlook Thick Client. I hate that thing. I use, we, we're a Microsoft 365 organization, right. but I use almost everything on the web, right. you know, with the exception of PowerPoint, which... Hey, Microsoft, if you're listening, please feature parity for PowerPoint on the web compared to the, compared to the client would be fantastic. Great, thanks. Um, but that, that shift away from the Windows environment, I mean, that must have reduced just a whole boatload of potential avenues for attack. And, you know, with the, with the Chromebook integration, you know, I'm assuming probably Google was probably the identity provider of choice. Um, probably simplifies a lot of the single sign-on experience, the, right. the recovery services that are long, the MFA applications, that's all just kind of built into the Google product itself. Um, I think there's a lot of organizations that are probably CISOs that are probably very jealous of the fact that, yeah, we were able to move people off of Windows. Right. How long did that battle take to say this is what we want to do from yeah. ideation, right, to, okay, let's do it? Was that like a three-month thing, a year yeah, so you're, you're going to laugh. So I, I have so many points in my career where I just had dumb luck working for me. I mean, just I can't take credit for any of it. So this was one of those. So we had a, um, uh, we had a service. We actually had uh, put the Active Directory controllers and those things in a colo. We were terminating that relationship. So there was literally a date when we had to decide what to do with this. And so those machines were getting unplugged and sent off to recycling, and we just had to make sure that we were done by that day. Whatever it was, mm -hmm. whether it was stand up an AD instance in the cloud, use some other provider, whatever, but we had a, a fixed date. So that was just luck. And then we took a look at the, the budget, and we took a look at the work to um, rehydrate those systems and to go and touch all the machines, and we just decided it just wasn't worth it, given especially the fact that most of the people spent most of their time in the browser anyway. Um, and we gave them nice Chromebooks. So we didn't give them a you know $150 Chromebook. We you know gave them much nicer Chromebooks, and uh, and and ran them to, through training and all sorts of stuff. And it was just one of these moments where we just pulled everybody together and just said, hey, this is going to happen, and we know that this is going to be difficult for some of you. It'll be, um, and a few people raised their hands, so like, well, I have. Chromebook at home, or my, my kids have Chromebooks, so it wasn't entirely foreign to them. Um, but we just said, you know, we're going we're gonna to make this work for you, and if you need special training, if you need special help, we're here for you, but we're, we're going to make you whole at the end of this process. And I think people understood that there was a security element to it. They definitely understood that there was a cost element, cost savings element to it, um, and that we weren't just trying to pull the rug out from underneath them, that we really did have their backs, and we really were going to be um, helping them in, in whatever way that we needed to. That's pretty cool. Um, the so you've been in the space for a while, and I guess I have to ask a little bit of a fanboy question here, right? So, um, from an accomplishment perspective, what are you most proud of in your career so far? Is there anything that you look back and say, "Yeah, that was awesome. Like, I'm glad I did that," or you know, that's that's something that people are going to remember me for. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, I'll, other I'll than being on this podcast, <laughs> of course, the podcast that comes. Number one that's answer. number one. Right. Um, so. Uh, 
and I'm going to tell you this, that I, I came to this realization very reluctantly. Um, you know, I thought, a lot of people thought when I came to the, to the DNC that I would be pulling in all of my friends who have these great uh, security products. You know, I live in, in, the, in the Bay Area. Surely I'm going to be pulling in all this high-tech stuff. And it turned out most of what I did was kind of a Marie Kondo thing, took a look around, held things up, and asked myself, does this spark joy? And if not, I'd try to kill it and work with people to, to disable systems and cut technical debt. And part of that journey was listening to people, not just at the DNC, but around the democratic ecosystem, who had questions about cybersecurity. And what people may not recognize is that state parties, for example, there are 50 states and seven territories, they're not... They're not remote offices. The DNC is not headquarters. They are separate entities, and they, which makes sense. They they can go to market locally and try to try to make sure that they're supporting the candidates that are that are going to make sense in their locale. What makes that challenging is that uh, they're on their own from an IT and security standpoint. So you can well imagine that these very small organizations are like any other small organizations trying to get by. Uh, and that they've heard a lot of things that they're supposed to do about security, and most of them are wrong. And so, uh, and they're just flat out wrong. And so a lot of what I had to do is, is try to figure out, all right, if I can't take over these organizations, how do I influence them to do the right thing? And so I started asking myself, where do we have, uh, where do we have these uh, bits of good advice that I can send them? And there was a really, really marvelous document. Uh, it's the Belfer Center uh, document on campaign security. And it's not super long, and it's written by people like, uh, you know, luminaries at Google and lots of other places. And, but it's, I don't know, a few dozen pages long. And I ask people, like, have you read this? Because I actually agree with all of the advice that, that is in this document. And they say, well, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. And I heard this over and over and over again. And so I ask myself, what, what can we do? What is the smallest number of things that people can do as just citizens that will dramatically change the, uh, the economics for the attacker. So not to make them bulletproof, but how do I just pull them out of harm's way? And, and so I just came up with this one-page document, and, and it's a proper checklist, uh, meaning that you have to, it's little check boxes, and you either did it or you didn't, so there's no wiggle room. And uh, it's at, if people want to go download it, you can go download it. It's at dnc.org slash security, <laughs> fairly straightforward. And, and so we really started to move the needle on this. And when people would call and say, what sort of VPN should I buy? I'd say, you shouldn't buy a VPN. You should do the checklist because that's how the attacks happen. That's in every, every attack that we saw where somebody's credentials were stolen, where their accounts were compromised, whether it's Facebook or a website, all of them would have been prevented if they had gone through the checklist, 100% of them over the last three and a half years. And so we just wouldn't let people divert the conversation to topics that weren't how the attacks were. So uh, so the, strangely enough, doing the checklist and going through a few revisions is actually the thing I think I'm most proud of, which is not a technical thing. So, uh, you know, I wish I could say, yes, we, we, de we deployed the neural net system that looks for intrusions or whatever, and like, we invented it. Like, no, it's, it's kind of the, it's the basics. And the basics turn out to be hard. And they require somebody who's not going to let you move your attention to areas that just don't don't matter. So get distracted by the shiny thing when it's the basic stuff. You know, I'm looking at the document here, and we'll have a link in our show notes to it. It's dnc.org/security, and 
there's something in here that I, I, I don't think I've ever seen before in a document like this. And you're talking about web encryption and the fact that you're recommending a web browser extension called HTTPS Everywhere, um, which is awesome because I think that's fantastic. I think that's an area that uh, that's unique. I have not seen that before. So I guess you're not just looking at, you know, really, you know, the basics of Macs and PCs and, you know, long passwords and MFA and things like that, but really going above and beyond, I think, to help the user be secure in all facets, not just the authentication portion, but what are the sites they're visiting even, right? And yeah. things like that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting one. So I think one of the things that people worry about, but don't take action on, is they worry that they are going to be compromised in a coffee shop. And they're going to be I don't know what percentage of your audience is going to completely, uh, they're going to do a spit take when I say this, but that's not how the attacks happen. You ain't going to get compromised in the coffee shop. It doesn't happen. And, and so you don't have to worry about that. And if you are worried about that, there are just, there, you know, the, the world has changed since 2010 when that was a real problem. Like when I was at Twitter, it was a real problem. Um, and, and it's not a problem now because of the things that have happened with Let's Encrypt and the browsers and all sorts of uh, improvements. And so if you're concerned about that last 5%, that last whatever, 7% of sites that are not fully encrypted or sites that have mistakes in them where most of the site is over HTTPS but some of it is not, then something like HTTPS Everywhere as a plug-in for your browser fixes that problem. Mm -hmm. Now, the good news is that when the EFF built this plugin, they knew it was for a window in time, and the browser manufacturers continue to make it harder and harder for you to access a non-HTTPS site. Google is now downranking uh, sites that are not fully over HTTPS. So there are lots of incentives pushing us in the right direction. But I admit, you know, for 5 7%, whatever the number is in the U.S., at least in the U.S., mm -hmm. outside the U.S., the numbers are a little bit different. Um, almost all the traffic uh, is fully over HTTPS. So, so we just said, you know, and if you want to do something else, you do that. You don't go buy uh, a commercial VPN. And heaven forbid you go get one of the free ones. <laughs> and I'm sure there are many people in the audience who are still uh, thinking that personal VPNs are a good idea. Um, if you are, uh, I'm sure we'll be arguing on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let's talk real briefly then about the, the conference talk that you gave uh, on Monday. It was called A Call to Arms, and for the people who didn't catch it, how would you summarize that talk? What was, the, what was it about, and you know, what's a takeaway that someone should be thinking about? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the things I wanted to do is, is share a little bit of, of my journey at the, the DNC and, and getting everybody to use FIDO security keys every day. And, and the talk, the, the quick summary is that the attacks only continued to get better across all of cybersecurity, of course, but around things like phishing and credential theft. And we see very few organizations that are really using <clears throat> MFA across the organization. But once they do that, if they're using SMS, if they're using two-factor, if they're using push, those are fishable mechanisms, meaning if the attacker can trick me into providing two pieces of information, name and password, they stand a very good chance of tricking me into giving name, password, and then MFA. And so what we need to do is get away from these fishable forms of MFA and move towards something stronger. And the only thing that really stands a chance in the marketplace is FIDO, uh, FIDO security keys. And that's supported across 
um, Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, Dropbox, Twitter, Facebook. So that's the industry, that's the direction that everybody's going in. And, and it's not just important for sites to offer that to their external audiences. The thing, the thing that I'm really worried about is we see all of these two-factor bypasses now. These toolkits are pretty straightforward. These businesses that are uh, building and, and selling, distributing, and supporting uh, malware tools and things like that, they all include two-factor bypass. Again, you ask for two pieces of information, and you check, and if the service asks for the third, then you ask for the third. It's really that straightforward. And so they're getting very good at that. And so part of the call to arms is to have organizations start thinking about their internal employee base and to migrate to FIDO very quickly. And my concern is that we're starting to see this huge elbow curve, uh, this exponential growth across the malware landscape, ransomware in particular, and a lot of those attacks involve credential theft and, and bypass of two factors. So we just really need to have a sense of urgency about getting rid of what I call legacy two-factor and migrating to modern uh, FIDO security keys. And unfortunately, what, what's happened is um, organizations may not have taken this seriously, and organizations like the DNC have moved all of our data out to reputable service providers. That's where the data is, which means that's where the attacks are going to go now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what we really want to do is make sure that all service providers, all MSPs, all SaaS providers, can tell us with a straight face, yes, 100% of my, uh, my employees must log in every morning using a FIDO credential. That's where we need to get to, and we're just, we're just far away from that today. Mm -hmm. The, the, the concept of legacy 2FA is something that I've heard multiple times here at the conference. Um, and for those listening, what, what I think is being promoted as legacy MFA is, is probably the thing you're thinking. It's SMS text messaging as an option that has not been recommended even by uh, NIST standards in the U.S. for at least a couple of years now. Um, but there's other ones on the list, and I think you mentioned things like uh, the Authenticator apps, uh, you know, push notifications, and I think... Some organizations still think that those are viable options. Um, and I'm not sure if I disagree or agree with it yet because I'm thinking about it from a CISO perspective is what's my upgrade cycle look like from a funding perspective right. to say, okay, well, we just spent a bunch of money to go to push-based authentication yeah. via the Microsoft Authenticator app, for example. That's a popular one. Uh, or, you know, Authy, something like that. Sure. And now we're saying as of, you know, October 2021, which is when this is being recorded, that oh, that's legacy now, and now we're looking at FIDO keys and things like that. What do you mean I have to go and upgrade again, right? I guess help me understand and help CISOs who might be listening bridge kind of that that divide there. Well, I don't know that I can help with, with the budgets or the upgrade cycles or uh, uh, so, user re-education. Yeah, I understand, like, the list of things that you have to do. Uh, the, thing, the list of things that I am asking you to do is very long. It sounds very simple, and I understand it is a journey, and it's a different journey for every organization. Uh, but I just take a look, I just step back and say, what, what do the attacks look like? And where is the data? Where is the value? And the attackers are like water in a cracked vase. They, they don't have to be told where to go. They just, they just find their way out. And that's what we're going to see. That's what we're already seeing. And so we see these early warning indicators. Um, almost every week now I see an article that talks about malware kits with two-factor bypass almost every single week and sometimes multiple times per week. Um, 
And we just have to ask ourselves, how do the attacks work and what are we doing to defend against them? And we have an opportunity. Uh, we're not helpless. We have an opportunity to start deploying something that really works. Obviously, the, the tech giants have been doing it. Google has been doing it internally for many years. And, uh, and so we have the opportunity to really defend ourselves. And if you take a look at um, uh, Christian Brand just spoke, and uh, he had some great screenshots from the Google Transparency Report showing the change in dynamics between malware and phishing. Guess what? It's all phishing now. Why hack? Why spend weeks, months, whatever, hacking when you can just ask the target victim for their passwords? And if it happens to be that they have MFA, just ask them for that too. Mm -hmm. And so the trend is so clear that I think it is worth organizations rebalancing their portfolio to do something as boring as focus on identity and access management mm -hmm. <laughs> and spend a little bit less time and money on the fancy bells and whistles and systems that you have for detection and all this other stuff. You just really need to move forward. So I, I hope that this, I hope that my <laughs> predictions age well, uh, and that we're able to get people over to the side of FIDO security keys. But um, I, like I said, the, the trends are so clear that that we really just need to uh, ask ourselves where are we today objectively, and then take appropriate action. So I'm sorry to all the people who are now going to have to go back, ask for more money, retrain users, roll out something else. It's going to be confusing. People are going to say, why didn't you do this the first time? I get it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but at the end of the day, how the attacks work is how the attacks work. Well, it's an evolution, right? I think capabilities evolve over time, technology over time, over time. And it's just something I think that, you know, I think people get it that things will change. I think the concern is it changes so quickly sometimes that it's it might be tough to keep up. So um, you've been really gracious with your time. And I think my last question will be just kind of a softball. You know, what's, what's been your favorite part of, of the conference? I think part of, <laughs> part of it is a few things. One is uh, I've had to work booths uh, as a vendor for many years, so I have great sympathy for the people who have <laughs> been working the booths. So hats off to all of those folks for being charming hour after hour after hour answering the same questions. So uh, that's, that's been fun not to be there uh, behind the booth. Uh, I think just being with like-minded people and uh, and having my mind blown a few times about like what's coming in Fido, um, I think there's just a lot of exciting work that's going on in the space. I think this is the first uh, uh, conference where they're uh, and Pearson, is that right? Um, I, I think Identiverse was oh for for, for authenticated for, for itself. Authenticate, yeah. yeah, last year I think was virtual and obviously for pandemic reasons. But yeah, yeah this is the first time it's been in person. So. Yeah, so this is this is my first conference also. So I think that that's been very exciting too. That's not uh, it's not really about the, the the conference itself, but just you know seeing humans mm -hmm. has been very nice. Yeah, it's my first my first uh, conference since uh, this whole thing starts. So it's my first business travel in like eighteen months. Yeah. So I was excited to kind of get out and. You know, for me, it is these, it's these hallway conversations, you yeah. know, meeting people in the space um, and having conversations with people like you. I, I had a conversation with Roger Grimes yesterday, and he was on our show, I want to say it was like uh, six or maybe seven weeks ago. And we talked about the different ways that MFA can be hacked. And I don't know how we got there, <laughs> but he and I, I think it was about 45 minutes, we started talking about quantum computing and quantum entanglement and cryptobiology, uh, you know, things like that. And you know, I'm sitting there with the, the head exploding, and he's just going on and on about this. And he sends me yeah. a white paper, and I read it this morning, and I'm like, okay, I think I kind of get it now. So I got to go track him down and say, hey, I read your thing. But that's the kind of stuff that I miss, yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm really kind of glad to get in front of it again. Uh, it's, it's all fascinating stuff. The, the one thing I would uh, caution people on is it's so interesting that it can be 
uh, it, it can be a diversion. And so I saw a survey, I tweeted about this uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, I'm sure we can go find it again, but uh, there was a survey and there were a whole bunch of questions asked of CISOs and it was, a national, it was an international survey, they interviewed a lot of different people. And if you take a look at how concerned people were at various things and then held them up against each other, it was a little crazy. So people were not super concerned with identity and access management and phishing, but they were very concerned about the advent of quantum computing. So they were not concerned about the thing that is attacking their company literally every hour, <laughs> right. but they're concerned about the thing that might manifest in five or 10 years. And I think it's very easy to get distracted, which is you know coming back to the checklist, mm -hmm. make sure you patch your software, mm -hmm. make sure that you use two-factor. And, and so coming back to these basics is really key. Um, but yes, in this industry, there are so many shiny things and staying on target is next to impossible if you don't have a lot of discipline. Mm -hmm. I think that discipline is a good way. Let's let's end it there because I think that's the key part of it is consistency, discipline, you know, good governance, making sure you're handling the basics well. Bob, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, hopefully you'll come back at some point in the future. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and, and leave it for you. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.